If you're in Northwest Baltimore, traveling by car or by foot, and you approach Paring Parkway or Argonne Drive near Hillen Road or Lock Raven Boulevard, you'll find yourself facing some very familiar signage. The blue and orange Morgan State University signs announcing your arrival at the oldest black college or university in the state of Maryland. I'm there quite often, since Morgan is where our radio station, WEAA, is housed. I see the signs all the time. But in fall of 2016, something changed. I noticed the scrolling electronic marquees beneath the signs bore a new message. They read, Morgan State University, where black lives have always mattered. I can assure you, there are very few long-standing institutions in America that could make that claim, and many of those are historically black colleges and universities. Morgan has survived a century and a half of change in Baltimore. During all this time, it's been a participant and an initiator of history. W.E.B. Du Bois owned a home in Morgan Park, the black upper-middle-class enclave adjacent to the school. Zora Neale Hurston studied at its erstwhile high school arm, Morgan Academy. Before he attended medical school and became a pioneering surgeon, Dr. Charles Drew taught biology and coached basketball at Morgan. Former NAACP president and Maryland congressman Kwaisi Nfume currently serves as the president of its board of regents. It was the site of nationally reported civil rights protests in the 1960s. It's the birthplace of the Iota Phi Theta fraternity. Its critically acclaimed choir has performed all over the world. We could think of no better way to kick off our second season than to amplify some of Morgan's illustrious heritage during the year of its sesquicentennial celebration. Sometimes, whispered history needs to be shouted, especially the history of the truly rare spaces where Black lives have always mattered. I'm Stacia Brown, and this is the second season premiere of The Rise of Charm City, episode 13, Protect Your Vital Morgan. Morgan State University is one of an astounding nine historically Black colleges and universities or HBCUs, celebrating its sesquicentennial this year. This is the largest number of HBCUs to ever reach the 150-year mark simultaneously. There's a good reason for the grand college opening boom of 1867. It was just two years after the 13th Amendment was ratified, marking a federal abolition of slavery. Immediately, the education that had long been denied generations of enslaved Black Americans became their foremost priority. My family's history traces back to our visionary founder, Reverend Samuel Green, who was born enslaved in Dorchester County, Maryland in 1802 and assisted his son, Sam Green Jr., in 1854, escaping along the Underground Railroad by his first cousin, who would have been Harriet Tubman. This is Professor Dale Green award-winning historical architect, assistant professor of architecture, and chair of the Historic Preservation Program at Morgan State. It wasn't until 1857 that Reverend Samuel Green was really caught in terms of being an Underground Railroad conductor, and at which time they found him with a copy of the Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was illegal for African Americans to read and write and possess books. He was arrested He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He served half the term. He went to Canada, where his son was. But when he returned in 1864, 
he worked very closely with the African-American community to found what was then called the Centenary Biblical Institute. Centenary Biblical Institute began in the basement of Sharp Street Church, which frankly deserves an episode unto itself. Quick context. The congregation was founded in 1787. It was active in the opening of the first post-slavery black school in Baltimore and is considered the mother church of black Methodism in Maryland. The congregation is still thriving today. In 1867, Sharp Street Church offered space to nine free black students beginning theological study. Professor Green's ancestor, Reverend Samuel Green, was an instructor. He is one of those early founders who worked with a group of African Americans as well as white individuals to start what is the first African American college in the state of Maryland. We now refer to it, obviously, as Morgan State University. But the name change wasn't a one-time deal. In fact, there have been four name changes since the university's inception. It became Morgan College in 1890 in honor of Reverend Littleton Morgan, the first chairman of its board of trustees. It remained a private school until 1939, when the state of Maryland purchased it. Then, in 1975, the state legislature designated Morgan a university, allowing the school to confer doctoral degrees. For this episode about Morgan's oldest and largest HBCU, we really wanted to find some legacy students, maybe someone whose mother or grandmother had attended Morgan before them. In Professor Green, we hit the jackpot, the legacy of legacies. That's my family's early connection, but obviously post him, there have been several family members who have been educated by this great institution. One of my cousins is here now, and he's the chair in the School of Public Health and Policy. I have a niece who is a graduating senior this year who will graduate in the sesquicentennial class. So 150 years later, she's the 11th generation of Samuel Green's ancestry. We found Professor Green when we attended Morgan's African American History Month convocation in early February. He was the keynote speaker. For a little over an hour, he swiftly and precisely tracked the college's steady growth through its architectural structures, the historic value of which led to the university being declared a national treasure in 2016. The national treasure status is quite significant. There are only two national treasures in the state of Maryland. Uh, The city of Annapolis is a national treasure, and Morgan State University is a national treasure. You heard right. Two national treasures in the entire state, and Morgan State University is one of them. Dr. Martin Luther King, who came in 1958 and shared excerpts from his I Have a Dream speech right here on this campus. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This was during his commencement address that year, at which Morgan awarded him an honorary doctorate. To Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, who lived for nearly 20 years adjacent to this campus. And one of his research assistants, Dr. Irene Diggs, a pioneering anthropologist in her own right, 
taught at Morgan for nearly 30 years. To the first statue of Frederick Douglass that was hand-sculpted by one of our paint artists, rather, here at the campus in his native land. You know, Frederick Douglass is a native Marylander, and we were the first institution to erect a statue to him in 1956. Where he was born in Talbot County, Maryland, they recently erected a statue in 2011, just to put that into perspective. Many building structures and areas situated on the 143-plus-acre campus are named in honor of notable alumni, instructors, or administrators. In 1917, 100 years ago, the Lynchburg campus was destroyed by fire. This happened in December. The building was destroyed, and all of the students and the faculty were saved by one heroic individual named Harriet Wolford. She managed to save everyone from that campus and later died of pneumonia as a result of exposure to the fire. In her honor, here on the campus of Morgan State University, they named a building Wolford Hall. Today, we have Wolford Infirmary, which is so appropriate. Stories like these emerge fairly often among keepers of the university's oral traditions. But we also wanted to investigate just how much of Morgan's riveting history is documented and preserved in print. So we headed to the Beulah M. Davis Special Collections Department of the Earl S. Richardson Library, named for the university's 11th president. My name is Ida Jones. I'm the university archivist here at Morgan State University. I was actually brought in as part of the sesquicentennial to help organize the materials they have here. In 150 years, Morgan has never had a university archivist. It has been run by professional librarians, and I admire those two women who, for the past 149 years, have been maintaining the space. When we visited the archives with Dr. Jones, she showed us some of the coveted papers and personal estate donations there. There are the papers of Dwight Oliver Wendell Holmes and Martin Jenkins, the first and second black presidents of Morgan State, as well as photos and artifacts from the late Victorine Adams, wife of the late local entrepreneurial legend, Mr. Willie Adams including a ballot machine from her successful run for the Maryland House of Delegates in 1966. We asked about other prominent Morgan women we should know. Irene Diggs, she was a sociologist, and she did great work in Central and South America, and doing that research in the 40s and in the 30s when very few African Americans were traveling. The room you're sitting in right now is the Beulah M. Davis Research Room. Beulah M. Davis was a graduate of Morgan State in 1925. She went and got her library science degree and came back in 1927 and remained here to the 1960s, building the collection from the 1,000 volumes to over 100,000 volumes. So she is really an unsung hero or heroine here on the campus. Dr. Jones says that the college archives don't include much of anything before the mid-20th century but she's hoping to connect with alumni and community members in order to solicit more submissions from personal collections. She says that establishing trust is imperative to expanding the archives. I want to establish best practices with the community to let them know, come in and see the space, and that you can see and visit that material. You've just heard a little about Morgan's earliest history. Up next, we'll explore the university's long legacy of social activism. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. To understand how Morgan State University became a hub of civil rights protest and activism in the 1960s, you'll have to know a bit more about the neighborhood surrounding it. When the community found out about Morgan State University purchasing the original 65 acres of land, they were in uproar. 
They went to the mayor about condemning the area because they felt that the Negroes would bring down the property value. They also hired the descendant of Edgar Allan Poe to represent them, and he was their attorney, and cases went as high as the U.S. Supreme Court level. You have to think of the constituents in Northwood. Most of them were um, lower-class white people, mm-hmm. and uh, they had demonstrated uh, their prejudice by building that wall across from the Christian Center. If you notice on Helen Road, there is a brick wall. Yeah. Uh, that wall was put up when Morgan College extended itself over toward Murphy Auditorium, and they did not want to see Negroes going to college. This is former Dean of Women, Dr. Thelma P. Bando, speaking to then-graduate history student Damon Freeman in 1994. We were fortunate enough to receive this audio from Dr. Jones. It was housed in special collections. We first heard about that wall she's describing from Dr. Green. He told us it's known as the Spite Wall. That Spite Wall went up in 1940 because the university continued to prevail and overcome from 1917 up to 1940. This campus rapidly developed. And so the developer began erecting a brick wall for which remnants of that wall still exist on Hillen Road. The surrounding predominantly white neighborhoods like Northwood and Lauraville had plenty of time to grow accustomed to the presence of Morgan State and Morgan Park, 23 years to be exact. But the spite wall served as a reminder that college neighborhood integration would be a long time coming. Our president during that time, Dr. Holmes, was very instrumental in having that wall stopped. Otherwise, that wall was intended to, for the most part, wall off what was then Morgan College. Nearly 83 years later, a portion of the spite wall is still intact on Hillen Road. The student civil rights movement, as we know it, actually was the derivative out of Baltimore. Simone Barrett is currently a doctoral candidate of history at Morgan State, where she also has earned her bachelor's and master's degrees. I'm working on my PhD in history. My um, dissertation topic is Morgan student-led protests. Morgan students have been protesting not only in Baltimore, but throughout the state of Maryland since the 30s. The Reed's Drugstore sit-in of 1955 is among the best known of all Morgan student protests. Another that ranks high on that list is the one that led to the desegregation of Northwood Theater in 1963. In 63, we still couldn't go to the movies at Northwood. In 63, there was a mass jailing involving Morgan students, many of them women. This was the largest jail-in to that date. It was the most effective. Students began demonstrating at Northwood Theater on February 15, 1963. This is a remarkable story. I'll let Dr. Bando's oral account explain it. The students at Morgan College, Morgan College then, had come from various places where they didn't know anything about segregation. New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. And they were stunned when they went to the theater, which was the closest theater to the campus. And they would not admit them because they were black. 
students decided to do something about that. So they protested by standing in line night after night. When the students at Hopkins found out about what was happening, they decided to join in the line. So the lines were like a block line long. And the students came from Goucher and everywhere just for the excitement. That excitement intensified when the arrests began. By day five of the demonstration, over 300 students had given themselves up for arrest at Northwood Theater. In an attempt to discourage more students from clogging the jail intake system, a judge set each student's bail at an exorbitant price, $600. That didn't deter them. Over the course of the demonstration, over 1,500 protesters gathered at the movie theater. More than 400 were jailed in all. There were about 200 women. Mm -hmm. So the majority of the students... 200 women from Morgan and maybe about 100 women from Goucher. And several of the young men from Morgan and from Hopkins. After the students were jailed, Dean Bandeau was permitted to visit them often. She says that one day she went to hold a kind of assembly in which she encouraged the students to speak about why they were committed to the cause. White jail employees were in the room listening. And when Dr. Bando returned the next day, they all had on prison uniforms. The girls had on long blue denim dresses with little white stripes, and the boys had on denim pants and blue shirts. And when I started talking with them, I said, you don't look like co-eds and college men, and I don't ever want to come down here again and see you in prison uniform. You are not prisoners. The next day when I went, they were never in the students told Dr. Bandeau they had never been given toothbrushes. When she confronted the warden on their behalf, he said the jail didn't have the resources to supply hundreds of toothbrushes to protesters. She cut him a check. She also brought the students their textbooks, delivered packages from their parents, and set place settings for their meals. The demonstration ended one week later, on February 22nd, with Northwood Theater's announcement that it would open its doors to black moviegoers. The first integrated screening at the theater? A Disney movie, In Search of the Castaways. Good, if there's a complication, enjoy it, enjoy it. You've got imagination, employ it, employ it. Truly, Morgan students were well-versed in the principles, practice, and power of protest. And sometimes they had to turn that power inward. Morgan received nothing. And when they did give us Jenkins Hall, it looked the ballers never work. The place was a death trap. You could go in there and catch pneumonia, you know. And, and when it was hot outside, it was burning up inside. This is Mr. Clarence Tiger Davis, former longtime member of the Maryland House of Delegates, current state president of the AARP Maryland. He earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees from Morgan. He came to the college after serving in the military. In the wintertime, it was cold steam coming from the floors. It would rain in the building. And somebody at the state level had the authority to uh, uh, let the contracts or what have you. Morgan didn't have any control over that. So people were just hustling us to no end. Mr. Davis explained to us that after Morgan transitioned from a privately funded institution to a state-funded one, 
Conditions for students declined as capital for the upkeep of facilities became more difficult to procure. And somebody hollered out, let's take over the administration building. Lo and behold, (laughs) here we go. It was the time of by any means necessary, and Mr. Davis says the administration knew it. Uh, Dr. Jenkins gave us everything we asked for because many of these things were things that he wanted. By the time 1969 had rolled around, I had graduated and I was in graduate school. And there was a huge disparity in funding between the historically black colleges and universities and the mainstream universities. In fact, Towson was three buildings on York Road. I doubt if they had 300 students. But with all that GI Bill money and increased access to education, they built Towson up to what it is now. UMBC, I think they started in 1966 and it built up from the ground. Simone Barrett also recalls researching intracampus protests over the state of buildings and resources. When I wrote my dissertation, I talked about them protesting for the gym, Herc Gym. That was like in 1950s, 47, they started the protest. Well, they had, they had people, 900 students, enrolled in gym. And we all have a gymnasium. They did a march on Annapolis, and one of the outcomes of the march was the gym that we're still using. That's the hit. It's not that we got the gym then. It's that we're still using that same gym today. If you go to University of Maryland, if you go to UMBC, if you go to Towson, they're not using anything, basically, that they had in the 50s, was built in the 50s or the 40s. Why are we? The funding disparity between Morgan and other local colleges has led to additional demonstrations over the years, including a few at the state capitol in Annapolis. As recently as 1990, students staged a six-day protest over hazardous dorm conditions that resulted in the construction of a $14 million female residence hall, Blount Towers, in 1991. According to a Baltimore Sun article about that dorm protest, From 1950 through 1979, Morgan received $750,500 for dorm construction and renovation and new dining halls, while neighboring Towson State University got $11.2 million, and the comparatively small Frostburg State in Western Maryland received $9 million. Up next, anecdotes from former and current students, as well as administrators. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I can recall um, my first visit to Morgan. Morgan State University President David Wilson. It was uh, shortly after uh, the chair of the search committee uh, looking for a new president had flown out to Wisconsin to convince me to take a serious look at the presidency here. At first, I indicated to her that no, I was not interested because I was very happy where I was as chancellor of 
the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. But uh, she did not give up. I did board a flight from Madison and arrived here in Baltimore one Friday evening and then got up early that morning uh, on Saturday, uh, put on my blue jeans and a baseball hat and made my way up to Hillen and East Cold Spring, uh, Morgan State University. And I walked this campus and I just simply could not believe what a jewel it was. It presented itself to me as a real historic place, number one, a prideful institution. And I saw so many students uh, who looked just like me, and I had not been in that setting in 30, 35 years uh, or so, uh, since my undergraduate days at Tuskegee. And everything about that said, you know, you need to take a serious look at Morgan State University. And I did, and I raised my hand, and I said yes, and the board said yes, and it's been just a wonderful, wonderful way forward since then. My mom was an avid sewer. She kept her degree in her sewing drawer, and I can remember many, many days sneaking and taking a peek of her degree. She told me it was sheepskin that it couldn't tear, so I always wanted to try <laughs> to tear it, even though I definitely wouldn't ever do that. But it was always a, a sense of pride. I entered this campus in 1964 and uh, felt pretty much out of place. I was 21 years of age. I had a wife and four kids. And my son was starting kindergarten, and I'm a freshman, right? So, you know, but they were enjoyable days, though, because my son and I would come to the basketball games together and stuff like that. Current Morgan State senior Janelle Ferguson is a second-generation legacy student. My mom is from Jamaica. She came to the United States when she was 13 years old. She made the decision to come to Morgan State. I was going through old pictures one day, and I just found a bunch of pictures of me in cheerleading outfits. My mother would even dress my brother in like the male cheerleading outfits. So when I got accepted to Morgan State, she was beyond enthusiastic. One of the founding producers and first on-air personalities at WEAA, Reverend Dr. Debayi Sababu Talmas, attended Morgan beginning in 1973. Campus it was wonderful. A major spot there was the Frederick Douglass statue. And the bridge, of course. Oh my God, the bridge. Especially during the, the nicer days uh, when the weather was fine. Everybody would stroll across the bridge and then they would go by the student union and go in there and just have a good time. And then, of course, Frederick Douglass was the place where people would just sit and talk and, and, and intellectualize about politics and society and all of that. Reverend Sababu Thomas worked to found the radio station alongside one of Baltimore's most recognizable public figures. This is Kwaisi Ufume, uh, chairman of the Board of Regents of Morgan State University. As a young person, I kind of became captivated by the uh, idea of this institution in Baltimore, being able to educate people, fight against the system, offer another argument to much of the banter of the day, and at the same time being a place where there were great athletics uh, and just great people. I never thought I'd end up at Morgan. My mother developed terminal cancer when I was 15. Uh, she died in my arms when I was 16. I had to drop out of school in the 10th grade uh, to take care of my three younger sisters. 
Morgan was never even in the picture. It was not part of my expectation. I was just trying to find a way to make money. I ended up, after being a dropout, uh, joining gangs in Baltimore. Uh, I became a teen parent. Um, and I was on my way to hell in a handbasket, to put it quite simply. Chairman Nfume eventually earned a GED, graduated at the top of his community college class, and enrolled at Morgan in his early 20s. And I got very active on the campus there, and I realized that the Morgan that I had revered and thought about and never thought that I'd be a part of was now uh, part of the engine that was driving my life. You can come to Morgan, as I did many years ago, and find yourself. And the fact that that is still happening today, just as it happened when I was there and as it happened, I'm sure, long before I ever got there, uh, it may be small in the minds of some people, but it is significant, for me at least, because it just carries with it an awesome uh, sort of footprint. And as long as the university continues to do that, we would have continued to live up to the mission and the mandate Uh, that the founders put in place 150 years ago. This episode was written by Stacia Brown and produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music is produced by Mark Gunnery of the Center for Emerging Media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. You can find and listen to the Rise of Charm City as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast providers. Join us in two weeks for the second half of our Morgan State history, featuring the founding of WEAA, the ongoing expansion of the historic campus, details of a controversial local lawsuit in which Morgan is centered, and the university's incredible connection to NASA.